you have your Bibles, which I'm sure you do if you're a Wednesday night crowd, <laughs> um, I'm sure you have your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 35 and 36. My goal, and I told the staff I'd try to finish today. Um, uh, and what a joy. I, I've just, God has really taught me. I, I struggled as I started to teach this and leaned upon things heavily at times. And But God has just opened my mind and heart to these Old Testament passages, and my study has been so profitable for me. I trust it has been for you, and um, it's been such a good learning process, but I have truly loved the book of Numbers, <laughs> and, uh, and I'll never read it the same again. I trust and hope you will not as either. Well, certainly God is a God who does not change, right? It is one of his uh, attributes, immutability. Uh, he does not change because he does not need to change on the reverse, we need to change because we're sinners and we're always changing in the image of the Lord. But our God does not change, so the God of the Old Testament, right, is the God of the New Testament. We must understand that. There's not a change there. But though God does not change, he does give further revelation, further understanding, so that we know who he is in a fuller way, and he, and he gives us an understanding through his words so we can accomplish what he's called us to do. But this no way negates the Old Testament instructions. Further revelation just gives us clarity. You think about the law and, and all that we've studied, particularly in Leviticus, as we see the tabernacle set up and all the instruments that are part of that, all that's looking forward to a greater atonement in Christ, and everything's going forward. And so the New Testament just certainly helps us understand God in an even deeper way and the unchanging God, he gives us such a telescopic, uh, a telescopic understanding of himself even. We see him in the Old Testament and then um, we see him more clear as revelation is revealed in the Bible, not by yourself. You're not getting some word from God. It comes from the Bible. As the, as the Bible is revealed, as you read the word of God through it, you grow in your understanding of your clarity and you see his divine plan. So when we study the Old Testament passages like this one tonight, we learn a great deal about him. And one of the things we learn about him is he cares greatly for his people. Boy, does he care for his people. I long to love like he loves. We should be striving to love that way. And God is a refuge, isn't he? And the old song says he's a refuge in the times of trouble, but he is a refuge all the time for us. We're humans, fallen creatures, saved by the grace of God, living in a fallen world. There's trouble all the time. (laughs) He's a God of refuge in this sinful and bloody world we live within. And so these truths that we're going to look at tonight, they're very interesting. They're about Levites and cities and set-apart and cities of refuge and, and these daughters that inherit land and all these things that are in here. And you go, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, let's take a look and see if we can figure that out. Number one, God always places called spiritual leaders among his people. God always places called spiritual leaders among his people. Let's look at this, the first eight verses of chapter 35. Did I give you that already? Chapter 35. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite of Jericho. I love that. Tells you right where they're at, right? Remember the maps have been putting up? Command 
command the sons of Israel that they will give the Levites from the inheritance of their possessions cities to live in. And you shall give to them the Levites pasture lands around the cities, and the cities shall be their, theirs to live in, and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their herds and for all their beasts. And the pasture lands of the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city towards uh, outward a thousand cubic around. You shall also measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits, on the south side 2,000 cubits, on the west side 2,000 cubits, on the north side 2,000 cubits, with the city in the center. This shall become theirs as pasture lands for the city. Verse 6, the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be six cities of refuge, which you shall give for the manslayer to flee to. And in addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be 48 cities together with their pasture lands. And as for the cities which you shall give from the possession of the sons of Israel, you shall take more than the larger, and you shall take less from the smaller. Each shall give some of his cities to the Levites in proportion to the possessions which he inherits. As we get into chapter 35, we find instruction about the Levitical cities is what's here. It's the main aspect, how they're strategically placed throughout the promised land. And it seems God's habit, every time he deals with the tribes, like, like last week in 34, remember the borders of all those different tribes, we were showing all the maps where, how they're arranged in there. Every time he deals with the tribes, if you follow it through Leviticus and particularly Numbers here, the next thing he deals with is, is the Levites. And that is what he does here. So immediately following the location of where the other tribes will be, he turns to deal with the Levites here. These first eight verses are instructions about where these cities are and how they're going to inherit this. Um, they're, they're there. They're given to them. You can see this in verse 2 and 3. They're to give them there so they can raise their families, their crops, their cattle, their, their herds there. You'll notice that the cities that were given to them were to include pasture lands. Now, in ancient times, the, the city would not have been very big, maybe a few collective uh, homes that have come together. But as you read that, it looks a little hard sometimes to read all the cubic stuff. But basically, from that wall of that city, they were to measure out a thousand cubics. So roughly from your... Mm, depending on how tall or big you are. Some of you are too short to do this. But um, uh, from your fingertip to your elbow, roughly, is what they would do. And so 1,000 cubic feet out, they were to do that. And then that border was to stretch 2,000. So you would have a city in the center, and then 1,000 feet out, 2,000 feet that way, and then from the east, it, well, that's west, to the west there, uh, south and east, the same thing. So it was a large square. They were to give this pasture lands to them. But notice in verse 6, since the Levites had no inheritance of land, they were called to be separate. These verses here teach them that they're going to have these cities. Um, they're going to be also uh, cities for the manslayers, but these cities are for them. They're to be separate from the rest of the people. They do not have lands per se like the the tribes do, but God gives them these 48 cities that are dispersed equally throughout the promised land. Some of them we cannot find. If you look at Joshua 21, just real quick, just flip over. I just want you to acknowledge and see this here. Um, 
in this text, we're not given all the names, but Joshua followed the command of the Lord as he replaced Moses. Uh, he had all this written down, and you'll see in chapter 21 of the book of Joshua, they have really stormed through the land. Remember, they didn't take it all, but they're at a point where they're starting to settle in the land, and so Joshua well, takes them. Then he took the heads, verse 1, uh, chapter 21 of Joshua, the, head, the, house, the heads of the household of Levites, um, they approach Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the household of the tribes of the son, uh, of sons of Israel. And they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to live in with their pasture lands for our cattle. So the sons of Israel gave the Levites for their inheritance these cities and their pasture lands according to the command of the Lord. That's going right back to Numbers 35. And then you can see the list of these 48 cities dispensed throughout these 12 tribes. Now, as you turn back to Numbers 35, there's a reminder here. The, Levitic, the Levitical tribe, the Levites, were to have no corporate existence. You need to understand that. Benjamin had a corporate existence. They had a land, Judah, Manasseh, um, Naphtali. They all had corporate existence. They lived together with bordered land. Not the Levites. They were not to be that way. In fact, they were to be dispersed and were to go where God appointed them to be. And in fact, they were to be in among all of the tribes of Israel. And God did this because he was giving the Levitical tribe a very important responsibility. And it was the spiritual care of the nation. He wanted them to be among the people. They were to give the law of God to his people. And they were to go to the people and give it. Moses delineates it a little clearer in Deuteronomy 33.10. This is what he says as he finishes out his sermons before he dies. He says this, they shall teach your ordinance to Jacob. He's speaking directly about the Levites. They shall teach your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and burn whole offerings on the altar. And he goes on and on. This is what they're supposed to do. They're to teach the ordinances of God to the people. And you can't do that way away in some land by yourself. So God's design was to use the Levites for oversight and spiritual care of the nation. For them to grow in the knowledge of God and what he requires of them and who he is did not want them to engage in the rest of the things that the tribes did. Remember, those tribes were very family-oriented. As we see, many of the leaders of the tribe, leaders of the families were given tasks, whether it was a census or going into the land or whatever it was. Those are all fa large family organizations. The Levites were commanded to leave their families and go. And this is a chapter that designates that. Phillips, in his very helpful commentary, says this. He said, even with their pasture lands around the cities locate, allocated to them, the total area of actual land given to the Levites could amount to only one-tenth of the one percent of the whole land of Canaan. Because as I was reading that, you're thinking, wow, 2,000 feet here, 1,000 feet. Wow, it's a pretty good little spread. Nothing, nothing compared to what the other tribes got had very little, enough to sustain their families and most likely care for those who came as refugees into their cities. 
Well, this certainly backs up what God says, where the Levites would have no inheritance like the rest of the tribes. He was their inheritance. And so the Levites functioned among the tribes strictly as those spiritual leaders. It was paramount that they were there. They were in amongst all those tribes to remind them who God was, to to be an intercessor for them, to offer sacrifices on their behalf. God wanted them there. A couple of clear aspects that you start to think about when you think about what God asked of them is they lived a life of separation. Now, we know that the Catholic Church and other monastery-type uh, religions take this to a way out-of-proportion uh, teaching. Um, it has led to all kinds of corruption and sinfulness. But it is clear that God asked them to separate as a people, as a Levite, Levite tribe. So on one hand, they live these separate lives with their families, while the other, other tribes and their large families all were in the same area the Levites were dispersed. They were sent abroad. In a sense, they were really the first missionaries. I mean, think about that. You're not going to live with your family, with your greater family. You're going to Benjamin. You're going to Dan. They're way up north. They border the land of Israel. The Lord's work often probably, it wouldn't be hard to think about this in some of those smaller way out regions, was lonely. It was isolation. God did not desire a strong concentration of his men that he had called to shepherd and care and mediate and and take care of offerings and uh, come to God on behalf of them. He did not want them all congregated in one place. He wanted them spread out to minister to his people. He wanted them throughout the whole land, serving the people. On the other hand, there were certain areas that God wanted them to go to. So he chose these particular cities. He he calls them to certain places. I like that. I really like that. If you want to follow the will of God and particularly in ministry, or even if you want to just move somewhere. So many people move, and they never, never seek God. They never look into a church. I mean, I, you know, I tell you, how many times I get phone calls where people say, hey, we moved to some place, and do you know of any good churches? Oh, have you already moved? Oh, yeah. So how do you know it's God's will for you to be there? You never sought out a church before. Do you think God wants you to live where there's not a church that will care for your soul and feed you? Well, well, they need good church, so you're ready to prepare to start one now. See, sometimes we just keep pursuing God's will, and, and so finding the church is part of this. And, and yet, God sends these ministers, these Levites, into places where maybe they had not chosen to go. I don't want to go to Dan. <laughs> you're going, because that's where I'm sending you. But they're given lands... Um, close to the cities they were in. You can see that there. They're, they're there. They have these pasture lands to sustain their families and meet their needs, and they can have their flocks and cattle, and they can survive there and help those who are in need. You just can't help but connect this to people in ministry. Uh, and that's not just vocational people, but, but it does apply to it. First Peter chapter 5, one of my favorite passages on elders there, Peter talks about the first equality of faith that he has with the 
congregation of God. He, you know, we're equal in faith, he talks about. But then he challenges the elders, plural, that are among the people because First Peter says that the church was dispersed and it lists a, a long list of Bithynia and Cappadocia and Asia and so forth. The church got pushed because of persecution. It scattered out and he's writing and in and exhorting the elders, and he says, the elders among you, the elders among you, he says it twice in four verses. This is a principle God has always taught. Put spiritual leaders among my people. Men that love me are dedicated to me in my word and love my people. He's always done that. And elders are reminded of those things you think of where I get up that, those lines, you know, love Christ, love, you know, love his word, love his people. I mean, that's, that's what a called elder should be doing. And he should be leading the congregation to those exact same things. And he sends us into those places. It is the mark of an elder. He is among the flock. Elders should not be unknown to the congregation. They shouldn't be locked away somewhere. I remember years ago, I had a phone call from a church in southern Colorado, and it was their elders. And they said, uh, man, we got this pastor, and he came from a really good school, I won't mention it. And um, they said, but he's, he's never among us. Could you call him, encourage him? He knows who you are. I said, sure. I called him up and asked him how he was doing, how his family was doing. And I, I asked him, I said, Jason, tell me about your schedule. I, you know, what? what's your study schedule? How much time in the Word are you getting? How much time in the ministry and the things that come with it? He goes, oh, Pastor, it was ground into me, and I have to have 40 hours for every sermon I preach, and so I just, I am committed to the study of God's Word, so I get it right, and, and um, I, I can make sure that every word I said is completely right with the Scriptures. Well, Jason, that's really good. I commend you on that. How much time do you spend with your people? Well, I, I know I haven't been as much as I should. And he went on and on. And I said, Jason, your flock is very nervous about you. They don't know you. You need to get among the flock. You need to know their names. You need to know what they do. You need to care for them, pray for them, love them. See, that's what God's intention was. We know that People are people, and probably the Levites, as the nation began to fall away, even the Levites were just doing things out of duty versus delight, but that was never God's design. His design was to be among the flock. And see, this all comes with our calling. A calling is that you have a calling. First Timothy 3 puts it this way. as a trustworthy statement. If, anyone, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So you're, you have a calling to the work of the ministry. But that means you have to be among the people to be able to minister to them. You can't be locked away somewhere. You can't be afraid of the flock. What good is a shepherd who's afraid of the sheep? 1 Corinthians seven twenty. it is a text in the context of marriage. But I like the statement. I've often referred to this. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Again, the context is marriage there. Remember that they were trying to say, well, I'm more godly if I divorce and not evolve. And you remember that. You can go back and listen to those sermons when I was in there. But I love that when I think about my ministry, each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. 
If somebody tells me, hey, I think God's taken me away to another ministry, so I said he's calling you away, right? Can you describe how he's calling you away? I want to know. Because this is a hard job, and I'll tell you, after 39-plus years now, there's times you want to run. That last dagger in the back, you just don't want to take it anymore. But you can't go because you're called somewhere. There's no one greater an example of, of calling from heaven and responding to that was Jesus. And he, did not, he was not given mansions here on this earth. In fact, he said foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Levites were not given much land. They were given a little bit of pasture land outside the walls. And if that city grew, I'm sure they kept measuring that out. But those pasture lands were often trampled when war came. Even the things they did have were often abused. But there's no one like Jesus. Often slept under the stars he created. He was rejected by his own people. Luke chapter 4. They tried to kill him after he preached to them. You think you preach some bad sermons. They tried to throw him off the hill in Nazareth. See, God calls us, particularly those of us in vocational ministry, to go where he sends us, to accept the situations that he has, declining or growing. No matter what they are, we accept those. And certainly we have roles and responsibilities in that. And so I think the application here of these Levites really does apply to pastors and elders and missionaries. One of the joys of my ministry is traveling and visiting our missionaries, and I would encourage you to keep letting me do that. Help me do that. You, you just don't know how encouraged they are when an older pastor shows up. I remember Kyle, when we were there in North Africa a year ago or so, he said, you are the first American pastor ever to come visit our ministry. And you're the first American pastor these nationals have ever met. That was such a worthy and profitable trip. Because they're sent to places where they have very little and often disrespected. And so here we begin to realize that pastors today and missionaries, they follow a calling that often leads them far from their family and friends. It's hard. Gene and I suffer from that a little bit. My dad is very, very ill. He's, I don't know if he'll make the end of the year, you know, and, and on the phone constantly with my sister who cares for him and my mom, and my mom fell recently. And, you know, those are just hard things. And yet God's called us. He's called us to be here, and we're here, and we do our best to communicate and FaceTime and all those type of things. And, and, and yet... Um, just the conversation with my family who knows what I do, they are always say, Scott, you keep doing what you do. We'll keep doing what we do. Isn't it a blessing to have brothers, really physical brothers and sisters in the Lord who do that? See, those who labor away from their home often are those who are really striving to fulfill a calling. I beg you and ask you to pray about the mission field. Don't be afraid to leave the comforts. Some of our people are traveling. I just spent time with 
Shannon Fitzgerald this week. She came into my office and just debriefed me on her time away in Northern Europe and old Soviet Union. What an amazing young woman dedicated to going on missions. But what about you, second career callings? David and Susan Dorner just got back from India. What a beautiful thing. We have a couple of young men right now in our congregation who are going through processes to go overseas. They are my heroes. And as I read this text, my mind just couldn't help going there because they don't get to stay home where it's comfort. They have to go. God has these 48 cities that need to be filled, need to have Levites in them, need to have a representative of him. Those who are declaring this is what God says, they have to have them. And this is why we got to keep sending missionaries. This is why we got to keep training people. You know, our, our Bible college and seminary are just hanging on by the grace of God. Uh, but you know, we have to train the next generation. We have to figure out what God wants us to do with those things. But, well, brothers and sisters, will you pray with me? I do not want to be a church that is not training and sending the next group out. And we can say amen to all that. I appreciate that, dear sisters. Um, but we got to do it. Second thought. I may not get it done with this. Justice and protection through the death of a high priest. This is really interesting passage. Look at chap- chapter 35, verse 9 through 15. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourself cities to be cities of refuge that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee to. The city shall be to you as a refuge for from the avenger so that the manslayer will not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. The cities which you are to give shall be yours six cities of refuge. And you shall give three cities across the Jordan and three cities to the land of Canaan. They are to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the sons of Israel, for the alien, for the sojourner among you, that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. Now, in these verses, God directs the nation here to have certain cities, these six cities, placed for refuge for those who accidentally commit manslaughter. You've got to make sure we have the terms down. Sometimes Americans don't quite get this, the difference between manslaughter and murder. Manslaughter is accidental, death of somebody accidental. Or they weren't committing the act of murder. There was intention was not to kill or murder that person. Murder is intentional um, plan, they're going to kill him. Okay? And so he's setting this part. This is, is not God's word so revelant, revelant today? <laughs> right? And so these particular cities are not specified here, but again, you go to Joshua chapter 20, because Joshua's the land's filling, and he starts setting these up. He believes God's word. He goes back and says, hey, we're supposed to be doing this. Let's get these six cities. So you can go back and read those, and you'll see where they're at. But they're appropriately spread throughout the land to allow the protection of those seeking their lives, right? Your ox ran over your neighbor and killed them and got loose. You didn't want that to happen, but If you've ever been around livestock, they'll kill you if they get a chance, some of them. Or you ran somebody over with your chariot or whatever it may have been. You have to flee. And it's what's so interesting as you study this, you find these cities are part of the justice system of Israel. 
They're part of that. And this is really key. God designed them to preserve the purity of the land. If, if you kill people who shouldn't be killed and you kill people that should be killed, or you don't kill people who don't be, should be killed, you pollute the land. That's what he's saying. And is that, is that our problem in this nation, right? And it starts from the womb to the tomb. And so here he's very clear on these things. And so these cities are offered for the manslayer, not the murderer. The manslayer's protection here. And throughout ancient times, you have to understand there was this culture in this day, and it's even around today, of revenge. Notice the word avenger. That's not the Marvel movies. (laughs) This is, it's talking about the person who's trying to avenge the death of somebody. Um, You heard when the Filipino pastors were here, we talked about the the people who killed the Filipino missionary that was up, up, in, the, up in the hill country. And they, the, the widow and the kids, basically the older son who I met and had a conversation with, went to encourage and, and do everything they can to stop their family so they wouldn't revenge. They said, that's not who we are. We're not going to avenge. We will let the law deal with this. So, here we are, God provides a place where a person can flee a city of refuge, where Israel's justice system can inquire into the matter, it can deliberate whether this is murder or it's accidental manslaughter. And if they accidental killed someone, if it's accidentally killed and they're proven innocent, they can stay here. They are safe. They can live with peace and live with inside those walls. But you'll notice in these verses here that if they venture outside that, they're hosed. They, it's bloods on their own hands. This is a safe place for them. Does anybody remember where you see this happen in the scriptures? I, I can only think of one. I think it's, there might be some other, but the one that I can think of is Solomon with, um, is it Shimei? Shimei? Remember Shimei was the man when David was fleeing with his family and he was up on the riverbank and he was cursing David? Do you remember that? And David's fleeing with his family, trying to get away from Absalom who's trying to kill him. And this uh, Shimei, Shim, Shimei uh, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm just bringing it up from memory here, um, was cursing him. After David's death, Solomon's tarkin taking care of all, all of the injustices that happened and he actually comes to this guy. And I think it's probably somewhere in 1 Kings 2, 3, somewhere around there. Solomon says, you stay in Jerusalem. I'm not going to kill you because my father said not to. But if you leave, you're dead. (laughs) Do you remember the story? And he lives there for a while, and he has a great life, and he's going along, but a couple of the servants are missing, right? And so he goes out to go find them. Hey, I hear you left the walls. Well, I was looking for my servant. You're dead. <laughs> he was using this text as a justice system to deal with Shimei. Verses 16 through 25 are very interesting words. These verses are defining manslaughter and murder. Look at 16 through 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, saying, These are the. Oh, sorry, wrong chapter. Um, but verse 16 and 35, but, he, but if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. Right? What do they call it? Pre- premeditated? Right? The murderer shall surely be put to death. 
if he struck him down with a stone in his hand by which he will die as a result uh, uh, in which he will die as a result he died he is a murderer the murderer shall be put to death or if he struck him with a wooden object in his hand by which he might die as a result he died he is a murderer a murderer surely shall surely be put to death See, here right away you see the definition of it. He goes on, if he pushed him out of hatred or threw something at him, um, he shall die, verse 21. Or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity, as a result, he died. And the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer, and the blood avenger, now here's a real key, shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. So 16 through 21, you have the defining of what a murderer is. We can use that today. It's still used when justice system is right in our country and around the world. That's what they come to terms. You deliberate. If you've ever been on a jury and you've been on one of the murder cases, you're going to go in and you have to define whether it's murder or manslaughter and so forth and what degree and so forth now. And then they let them out in five years. We won't go there. 22, we get into the manslaughter. But if he pushes him suddenly without empty and threw something at him without lying in wait or with any deadly object or stone without seeing it drop on him so that he would die while he was not his enemy or seeking his injury, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to these ordinances. So there you have the definition of manslaughter. It was accidental. And there's going to have to be uh, an investigation to understand whether that was in his heart to do that or was not. So we see God just establishing clear, very distinction between two different things, murder and manslaughter. And he's giving the congregation, and the Levites were to do this, to give instruction to congregation of how to pass judgment. Now look at verse 24. Then that congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to the, ordin- uh, the ordinances. So, so this is the result. They're, they're to look at this. They're to make a decision. Was this murder? Was this manslaughter? And the congregation, their own people, their own people were to judge. You can see why our country was set up the way it was, right? You're judged by a, a group of peers. This is, comes right from God's word, whether most Americans know that or not. Now, notice in verse 21, if the person is convicted, look at here, and charged with murder, the avenger of the blood shall become the executor, executioner. He's the one who's supposed to do that. And, but if it's, but if, if to the congregation, um, but if it was to be the congregation, not the avenger who makes the judgment, they examine, they're, they're to examine it. For so, so the congregation has a lot of responsibility. They have, to, they have to know so that the avenger can't carry out something that he commits murder himself. So there's a lot of responsibility on this. Verse 30 gives you a little more understanding that no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Um, in the beginning, it says, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15, Moses uses the actual two witnesses there, and so that became the rule of law. But probably the most interesting verse in the group is verse 25 to me. Look at this. The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger. So you can't kill him. He's safe within this city. 
And the congregation shall restore to him to restore him to his city of refuge. So he's given a city. They choose what city to put him in, to which he fled. And he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was atoned with a holy oil. Now this is quite fascinating. Again, you see this high calling of the priesthood, right? Not only do they pass out the law of God and teach and grow the the people of Israel spiritually and an understanding of who God is and how you approach him. But here they actually play a role almost like a king or a judge. They grant amnesty. And, and they, those called to this ministry, I mean, just imagine the weightiness of that. You stay here until I die. It must, have, it must make just decisions, these men, Based on God's word, they, whether they are accepted or not by God's people, what a challenging thing this must have been. And, and, I, and I, it's still that way. It's still very difficult. There's times men that God has called as leaders of his people, they have to make some of the most difficult decisions. Some of the hardest things you can't imagine that we sometimes have to go through where we have to pray and search the scriptures and finally make a decision that is so difficult. Because you know there will be some who will love you for it and some who will hate you for it. And that's what these men found themselves in. And they're isolated away from their own tribe, their own family members. Now, there seems to be a deep, significant reference to atonement here. Notice in verse 25 where he shall stay alive until the death of this high priest. And then at that time, he's anointed. He's, so there's some, something to do with the death of this high priest that atones for this killing, whether it's accidental or deliberate, whatever it may be. And when he dies, he's now free to leave. Well, if you can't tee this one up, I don't think you should be in the pulpit. This is exactly what Jesus does for us. It is because of his death that we are now free, aren't we? <laughs> and, and there's just so many verses. I just thought of one, Hebrews chapter 7, 26 through 27. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy and innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted above heaven, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. That's the high priest of this chapter, not Jesus. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So at his death, burial, and resurrection, he freed the captives. Because you may say I was just manslaughter, but you were still a captive. Because if you left, you were going to die. Jesus frees us, doesn't he? And that is death, and he's the ultimate high priest that, that's undefiled and sinless and doesn't need to offer sacrifices for himself like these men in this text. They'd have to offer sacrifices for themselves, cleanse themselves, go through all this ceremonial stuff, and then finally be able to offer the sacrifice for the people. Jesus didn't have to do that. He went straight in the presence of God and said, here's my own blood. And he set us free. Three, the grace of God and his greatest city of refuge. Well, verses 
26 to 34 are quite interesting. Let me walk you down through this. Look at the first four verses or so, verse 26 and to 29. But if a manslayer at any time goes beyond the border of a city to refuge to which he may flee, the blood of the avenger finds him outside the borders of his city of refuge. The blood, the blood avenger kills the manslayer. He will not be guilty of blood because he should have remained in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. You think you're going to get to heaven without the blood of Christ? I mean, do you see that in the text? Am I, I mean, I love Chris seeing Christ in the Old Testament. You do not go to heaven without the blood of Christ. And, and I love this. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to his land of his possessions. <laughs> because Christ died for us, we're headed for the ultimate promised land, aren't we? We're free to go. Verse 29, these things shall be a salutary ordinance to you throughout your generations in all your dwellings. This is the way things are to be done. And so these verses reference have really already been made, but there's this fugitive who lives in this city, and he's safe there until the death of the high priest. Look at verse 30 with me. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So again, the death penalty would be carried out not only through the evidences of witnesses, in which there must be two, but they are to die for taking the life of someone else. Now, this verse and this principle became abused, and we know it because we have evidences of it. When Jesus is on trial the night of his arrest, they kept bringing in witnesses. Remember that? And the Bible actually calls them, Luke calls them false witnesses. Same thing happened to Apostle Paul. As you read towards the end of the book of Acts, as he's on trial, they brought in false witnesses to try to condemn him to death. And so they would even take this principle to keep the purity, the unpollutedness of the land, and they would use that to get rid of people they didn't want. Do you remember when this happened? Jezebel, in a little garden that her whining Ahaz husband wanted, remember? So she goes out and gets a couple of worthless guys, drums up a couple of charges against this guy, and they went out and stoned him and took his little garden. Read your Bible, people. It's so fun. (laughs) I mean, because these things are just, it's just all through this, isn't it? You just you begin to see how this works itself out. Is there not a reason why we don't teach on numbers? <laughs> because it's God. It's a God who has not changed, right? And we see these principles lived out in our life today. Look at verses 31 and 32. Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. You shall not take ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to live in the land before the death of the priest. So he can't leave before that death, and you can't take a ransom. And here more the idea is a bribery. <laughs> so you can't take money for the murderer or even the manslaughter who, who leaves early. That's not allowed. Uh, Several theologians that I read on this said it was very customary in the pagan nations around them that even though you were guilty of murder, if you could come up with enough money, you could get the person off. (laughs) We still see that today, don't we? Like, how did that guy get out? 
Who knows what happens behind closed doors? You can imagine what kind of problem this could be. But God did not want a cheap or degrading justice system within his people. And so he said, no, make no alterations. This is my legislation. You're not going to have ransoms or briberies to get this man off. He stays in the city till the high priest dies. If he's a murderer, he dies. There's no way to buy him out of it. The wages of sin is death. Verses 33 and 34. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are. Wow. All this is coming down to the purity of the land God was given. For blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which you dwell. For I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. Well, certainly these final verses on this issue are summed up in the possible pollution or defilement of the promised land. The promised land being defiled because they went against God's word. Hmm. Anybody would care to put that in any personal context? Uh, certainly, God forgives his children. But do we pollute our own homes? Do we pollute churches? Do we pollute? When we allow or have things take place that we know God said not to do, and yet we do them anyway. James says that's sin. If you know what to do, but you do not do it, to him it is sin. And sin is a pollution, right? It's a stain. It's, 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 it's the everything God isn't. And so you can see he's, he, he's very clear here. And you can't help but see the emphasis of the Old Testament is putting on the truth of sanctity of life here. He does not want innocent people to die. He protects the innocent. And, and when you get into sanctity or some people call it sacredness of a God-given life, it comes down to the Old Testament teaching that God based human life upon his own being. We alone, no creatures, nothing else, we alone are created in his image. We're his image bearers. And because of that, life is sacred. And brothers and sisters, we're going to get in a lot of trouble as time goes on because we are going to stand for the unborn. We're going to show the forgiveness of Christ to those who have committed abortions and God forgives them and saves them. And how many women have I met through the years that came to Christ over that and, and he's freed them of that. And I praise God for that. But we still, nevertheless, protect humanity. These are image bearers. And every one of us are image bearers. Listen. God was so gracious to Cain, wasn't he? What have you done with your brother, Cain? Am I my brother's keeper? Smart Alec Cain to God? God knows exactly what he did. He's given him an opportunity to repent. 
Instead, he smarts off to God. God says, do you remember what he says? His what? Blood cries out from the ground. Whoa. You think you got away with something? By the graciousness of God, he protected Cain. Cain said, oh, my life will always be in jeopardy. Oh, I'll never make it. God is, he is just not like us, right? We're like, yeah, sorry, you're gone. <laughs> he goes, okay, I'll put a hedge around you. You'll be protected. Flood comes. Cain doesn't make it. He ain't on that boat. But after the flood, God says, Genesis chapter 9, directly to deal with what he did with Cain, what Cain did, and from then on, chapter 9, 5 through 6, such an important verse in the sanctity of life, and how we deal with murder how we deal with these things rightly. Surely I require your blood from every beast. I will require it from every man, from every man's brother. I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he was made. Can't beat that. You can't get around it. God is for the death penalty. He has always been for the death penalty. He saves people on death row. You will meet many of them, I'm sure, in heaven, who God saved because he loves to draw people in the 11th hour. Now, remember, in our introductions, we said that God does not change, but he does give further revelation. But when you think about this principle, there is not much further revelation. He has not given us more understanding of how not to kill killers. He hasn't done that. He hasn't said, well, you know, we're under the new covenant now. Let's, uh, let's just let murderers go. Or let them do a little bit of time and you just pay a lot of money and keep them there for a while. And he hasn't changed on this. His principles are very clear and it's for society's good. And there's so many wonderful laws that are on our books and our nation was founded upon that came from biblical principles that are so good for society so we can live in harmony together in some way so we don't kill and pillage and rape one another, as we've seen lately, these things are good for society, and yet they're constantly attacked. Because it's not a hateful for the law, it's a hatefulness for the lawgiver. So we vote for people who protect these laws. That's our job. Protect your family. You have the right to do that. But vote for people who Love the sanctity of life. Do not dare vote for someone who would put children to death. Do not mark a ballot in any shape or form of someone who would put somebody, a living being, an image bearer, to death inside the womb of a mother. And so the principle applies here. All human life is precious in the womb or out of the womb. And taking another life without true biblical reason, murder, the justice of war and policing, Romans chapter 13, all of it's forbidden from God. Let me just close with just a final thought, and then we'll have to come back in a couple of weeks and finish the rest of the numbers, but I love cities of refuge, refuge. In fact, the more I studied this, the more I said, oh Lord, I love this. And there's a reason why, because it taught me that 
our city of refugee, refuge is Jesus. And we live with him. And he lives with us. First John said this, verse, chapter 3, verse 15, if anyone hates his brother, he's a murderer. Well, there we're all gone. And know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's a problem. 1 Corinthians 6 goes through a whole list of people, which would all include us because he adds at the end of it, covetousness, don't inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus said as he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus said, come to me who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Lean on me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul for my yoke is light. Come, fornicator. Come, adulterer. Come, liar. Come, coveter come to me you will find forgiveness and refuge he is the city on the hill the gospel is the light that shines through him brothers and sisters (laughs) the city is in America I loved Ronald Reagan but he was wrong the city is Christ the light is the gospel welcome to the city of God. If you're a believer, there's even a better one coming. Father, thank you. This has been an extraordinary passage. I pray these dear brothers and sisters receive something today, but I thank you for opening my mind and heart to this text. I had not seen the depth of this before. And so, Lord, what a blessing to have your word so encouraged by so many people on a Wednesday night that would come out with their Bibles in hand, ready to learn. Please bless them, Lord. If it be your will, let us teach others who you are, what you've done, and how you're a refuge for sinners. May we welcome them as former sinners, forgiven sinners. Love them, care for them, forgive them. Help them know Jesus. Help them know his word. And help them know his people. Lord, bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.